This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It was a leap into the great unknown. On January 1st, five years ago, the world's first legal, fully licensed recreational marijuana stores opened in Colorado, and nobody quite knew what to expect. I hope they don't run out. I mean, God, God forbid, man, that would be horrible. 26 cents is your change. Here is your receipts. Thank you. You're very welcome. Since then, the world's eyes have remained on Colorado, and on Denver in particular. How would they regulate a new and ever-changing industry, one that remains illegal federally? Well, a great deal of that responsibility has fallen on Ashley Kilroy. She's director of excise and licenses for Denver. So her office licenses dispensaries, testing facilities, makers of cannabis products, even marijuana transporters. I asked her what the biggest surprise has been in the past five years. We were not ready for the popularity of edibles and some of the negative consequences we saw early on with people consuming too much THC in an edible. You didn't think that's how people would use marijuana when it became legal recreationally, but it turns out people wanted to eat it. And what what uh, issues did that cause? We had at a minimum, two instances where individuals consume too much marijuana. And you might recall Levi Thumba, who fell to his death at a hotel, and another man who shot his wife. And there are all kinds of questions in that case about whether marijuana was to blame or not. But the point is that someone would see a cookie, I guess, in those early days and think, one cookie, one serving. Right. And that wasn't the case. Right. Exactly. What was the case? How much might a cookie have before this got regulated? It just sort of depended because there were no real regulations around it. What we ultimately, I mean, as soon as we realized that was an issue, we all began working really quickly on this. With the state included. Yes, yeah. And we determined that a serving size should be 10 milligrams of THC. And if you're going to eat something like a cookie, and people normally eat the entire cookie, the entire cookie should just be that one serving size of 10 milligrams versus 100 milligrams, and someone's required to break it into 10 pieces. I mean, I think about those early days and the labeling issue as well. Was it even clear that it was a pot cookie? Exactly. Those were some of the things that we were still working on. I always like the metaphor, building the plane while flying it. It seems like that's apropos here. Oh, absolutely. Okay, December 31st, 2013. Did you sleep at all that night? Actually, I did. Okay. (laughs) I'm impressed. (laughs) Just fine. Um, I did, you know, the big plan was we were getting up early that morning, getting downtown. We had, as you probably recall, international media in town, obviously lots of local media. And lots of uh, hype and anticipation and some incorrect predictions about what that first day would look like. There was a lot of concern. Were we going to have enough stores open? Were there going to be um, stampedes on stores with people trying to buy weed? Were people going to buy marijuana and all be smoking in the street? Were people going to be camping out the night before? Did any of your worst fears come true for that day? No. What does that tell us, perhaps, about this drug? The first thing it tells me from a regulator standpoint is that we had done a good job. We had already been working with the industry. We had already developed something that we called the good-to-know cards. Please hand your customer this card that says, hey, public consumption is illegal. It's illegal to drive high. It was a coordination with the industry, the coordination with our police department. And I think we also said, too, and thank you to our citizens who were responsible. And we all moved forward together and had a, a great opening day. Do you think that it uh, was a little bit of um, almost like reefer madness fear that led up to that day? I mean, I think with marijuana, what we still see is 
marijuana is an issue that people feel passionately about on either end of the spectrum, whether it's the reefer madness spectrum or maybe the other spectrum that this is the best thing since sliced bread. I wonder how often the phone rings in your office from folks elsewhere in this country or somewhere else in the globe going, how'd you guys do it? Tell us, where's the handbook? Yes, every single day. What are the kinds of questions you get? I mean, right now, the most recent conversation, we just had a couple of calls with Massachusetts because they just came online about vacating marijuana convictions and what are you doing and how are you doing and what have been the challenges you've seen and what has been the reaction? And in terms of vacating sentences, that's underway here. Exactly. Yes. Why is that important, do you think? You know, it's something that's been important to the mayor from the get-go. I mean, with all of us city agencies, he's always directed all of us to look at our work through a social equity lens. And so in June, we started talking with a couple of other cities about cities moving forward together to vacate convictions for conduct that was illegal at the time, but is now legal. Social equity. What does that mean? When we look at marijuana convictions, we understand that um, some of our low-income and minority communities have been disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. And what can we as a city do to correct that? There's also some talk about doing this on a state level with the new attorney general, I'll say. I wonder to what extent the city is taking a lead, perhaps even politically, on a national level, because this is a drug that remains illegal federally. Yes. You know, after five years, a lot of hard work in the in this arena, the mayor realized, you know, we've done what we can do, and it's time for the federal government to step out and take that same good government approach. So um, Mayor Hancock has organized a coalition of mayors to advocate for sensible regulations around marijuana at the federal level. What does that mean? The first thing that he did as part of this federal coalition was um, he'd sent a letter to Congress urging that they adopt the States Act. So that if a state passes this, the federal government recognizes that in some way. Yes. You know, we think we have enormous challenges, as many people know, around the banking issue because marijuana is illegal on a federal level because of the Controlled Substance Act. And so much of the banking laws and oversight is federal. Yes. Our legal marijuana businesses here in Denver generally do not have access to banking, and they aren't treated um, the same way other legal businesses are with regard to federal tax deductions. This is a, a huge undertaking, regulating an industry that's often changing. I think you hired 60-some-odd people and built a team around this. Do I have that right? Yes. Which brings up the question of money. So do the tax revenues for marijuana, especially recreational marijuana, pay for the regulation required? And have they resulted in some sort of a windfall for the city and county of Denver? When marijuana was first legalized, Mayor Hancock went to the voters and asked for an additional sales tax on retail marijuana or recreational marijuana so that we would have the funds to properly manage it and oversee it. Last year, all of the marijuana sales tax and revenue brought in about $43 million to our general fund. Sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. But putting it in perspective, it's probably about 3 to 4% of our overall general fund revenue. These are new numbers, in fact, that you're sharing with us right now. And I know that some of that money goes towards affordable housing. Didn't the mayor make that a priority for it? Yes. I remember speaking with a marijuana entrepreneur, gosh, I think just earlier this year, who had expressed frustration with how reluctant the mayor has been to visit a dispensary. Do you think that he was reluctant and do you think this administration was reluctant at points? 
to fully embrace in the beginning? No, absolutely not. Because right away, as soon as it passed, the mayor jumped into gear and developed this management model that our team has put together. He would not have put the resources towards that if he was reluctant. I want to ask how this affected another aspect of city government, which is police and fire. Yes. Well, first of all, we had to learn what the industry was doing so we could anticipate their specific regulatory needs and safety needs and protect public safety. So there's a number of agencies that inspect marijuana businesses and marijuana grows. Denver Department of Environmental Health will inspect for food safety type issues. Talking about edibles. Yes, exactly. And safe storage and safe food handling. Um, Our fire department is in charge of overseeing hazardous processes and hazardous material storage. We also have building inspectors and electrical inspectors. And as we first started getting into this, we didn't know what a marijuana grow was going to look like, right? We didn't know what they were going to be doing um, specifically. And when we first started getting in there, our agencies were seeing hash oil machines, and they certainly weren't UL listed. So So sort of certified for their electrical use and safety. Exactly. And so our fire inspectors and our fire engineers had to work with the industry to learn what are you doing? Why are you doing it? Um, We brought together a bunch of people. We talked to the engineers and architects of those machines. And of course, if hash oil isn't properly produced, it can result and has resulted in explosions. Yes, absolutely. And injury and death. Yep. And so the fire department came up with a way to have a permit system for these machines to work with the industry to help keep the industry safe and those neighbors safe and the community safe. And now our fire department has worked on the national fire regulations that now have incorporated some rules and regulations around marijuana. Do you think that there's a problem the city has not been able to get a a handle on when it comes to recreational marijuana? I really think that with the regulated market that we've done a, a really pretty good job. I think we still have issues around the unregulated market, around the, illegal the black home, market. right, and illegal home grows. Definitely have some issues there and um continue to have to have a focus on that. Yeah, what what issues do they pose? I mean, I know that Sometimes it's just an, a massive amount of electricity use, you know, for a single family home. Right, right. Well, because marijuana is still illegal in a number of our states, the primary concern that we, we care about is that people are, are growing excessive marijuana and shipping it out of state as an illegal em- enterprise, a criminal enterprise. Um, but then also the other things that you're talking about, too. I mean, if you have an illegal home grow, oftentimes it's impacting their neighbors. It smells. Their house might be, you know have overloaded electrical, might have, we've had explosions in homes. We've had eight home hash oil explosions in the first six months of legalization. And then, you know, molds and mildew and pesticides in homes. It's a real problem for our community. I know that one concern of those who oppose the legalization of recreational marijuana is use among youth. This was expressed, for instance, by our governor, uh, who had a lot of fears about that going into legalization. What do we know about kids and marijuana in the city and county of Denver. Absolutely. That has always been a high-level priority for us as well, youth prevention and youth usage. And what we've seen is that in the last couple of years, our youth usage has actually declined in Denver. I think 2015, it was about 26% of our youth had used marijuana in the last 30 days. And as of the last survey in 2017, that had dropped to 21%. That's so counterintuitive, especially at a time when the fear was you would be conveying a message to young people, hey, it's really not that bad. See, we legalized it. Absolutely. What is? What do you think is behind that? 
one thing that's been really exciting and really interesting. We have a youth prevention campaign called The High Costs, and we've had a marijuana game show called Weed It Out. marijuana. Teens who use marijuana are blank times more likely to develop depression. A7. What's the answer? <laughs> answer is C. What we've decided with the high cost campaign is we know that the Just Say No campaign did not work. Kids do not want to be lectured to. So we're giving them the facts and letting them make their own um, conclusions. And you think they're coming to the right ones more often? We think so. I mean, seeing that five percentage point drop is pretty big. Ashley, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Ashley Kilroy is the director of excise and licenses for the city of Denver. She was tasked with making sure Denver was ready when recreational marijuana stores first opened in Colorado five years ago. Temple Grandin sees everyday life differently, like a film in my head, she says, in vivid visual detail. Grandin is the renowned animal scientist at Colorado State University. She revolutionized the treatment of livestock. She has also spoken out for people with autism, like herself. Now she has a message for kids. Put down your phones and make stuff. Her book is Calling All Minds, How to Think and Create Like an Inventor, and it's one of our favorites from 2018. Temple Grandin, welcome back to the show. It's really good to be here. You want kids to have some of the experiences that you did, making use of everyday things. And I think of the cardboard in your father's shirts when they would come back from the dry cleaners. In the book, you call that treasure. Uh, What did you do with that cardboard? Oh, I made puppet stages out of it, just all kinds of things. But when I was a child, I loved to tinker and make things. I spent hours uh, making a bird kite, and I had to experiment and experiment to get it to work. A lot of kids today, they don't know how to tinker. They don't know how to make mistakes. And Calling All Minds also has got profiles of famous inventors and lots of patents in there, including my grandfather's patent um, because he was co-inventor of the autopilot for airplanes. That's right. This is in the Grandin blood. Have you looked up that patent? My understanding is... Oh, yes. The patent is in my book. I've got lots of cool patents in there from really important ones to even got a couple of silly patents that kids will think are fun, like decorative fly swatters. And you'll just have to read the description that's in the patent. It's really funny. Back to your childhood, you said that you made things like bird kites. What's a bird kite? Well, I took a little piece of a textured art paper and made a little triangular kite shaped like a bird. And I bent the wings up um, on the ends, just like what a modern jet airliner has. And I had to experiment and experiment to get it to fly behind my trike. I was a really young kid at that time. And I reinforced the wings with just the right amount of tape, and then it would work really well. You know, there's kids today that have never made a paper airplane. I did a book signing for the book recently in Colorado, and I found a lot of young elementary kids had never made a paper snowflake. They hadn't made a paper airplane. we got to get kids making stuff. Now, why? Because I I can imagine a kid listening to this going, well, that sounds super analog and old school. It's going to teach them important skills like how to improvise, how to solve problems, how to think simple. Just the other day, the paper jammed in my copier and uh, then all of a sudden it just wouldn't work at all. And I was getting kind of annoyed at it. And I go, wait a minute. I checked the plug, but then I realized this copier had a jack in the back and I had to plug the other end of the plug in. 
it had gotten unplugged when I turned it around. Sometimes you just got to think of the simple thing. And you think that that kind of, I guess, analog doing, that tinkering, as you've called it, you think that actually might lead a child down a path where they're doing much more sophisticated digital technological things? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, in USA Today, uh, there was an article about uh, limiting screen time to about two hours a day, Hmm. and the kids did better on a lot of cognitive things. You know, there's a lot of students today that don't even know how to look things up online. That's why in my class, I've got an assignment where they can pick out something interesting in animal behavior, and I want them to look up articles on the different scientific databases. We need to be getting kids better at problem solving. Also, Kids are not getting exposed to tools and enough trade stuff. Uh, one of the projects in Calling All Minds is my fifth grade woodworking project. Yeah. Um, and it teaches you how to use a little coping saw because we've got kids today growing up to be teenagers and they're not using tools. We've got a gigantic shortage of skilled tradespeople. And these are good jobs that are not going to get replaced by computers. And one of the worst things that schools have done is taken out music, theater, automobile shop, welding, uh, woodworking, because these are uh, careers where uh, they will not get replaced by computers. Electrician, plumber. I think we should talk about the importance of failure, of trying, not succeeding, and then trying, and maybe not succeeding again, and then eventually succeeding, how how important that is to the process. Will will you just say a few more words? It teaches patience. And I had to tinker and tinker to get my bird kite to work. And there's a lot of kids getting shunted into special ed that are visual thinkers like me. And you need these tinkerers. Uh, They're the ones that figure out how to make things work. Yeah. You write about a young woman, I recall, who loved to take apart alarm clocks. And instead of being sort of castigated by her parents, uh, they encouraged this kind of behavior, this, this exploration of how things work. Well, I would also encourage putting them back together again, which means that uh, as you take them apart, you need to lay the parts out in a line on the workbench so you'll have the right order for putting them back together again. To this day, you write, you still like to look up patents, huh? Oh, yeah. I think looking up patents is fun. Um, When I went to recreate my bird kite, I was not able to buy, at least buy easily, the same textured art paper I had as a kid. So I had to use file folders. And they don't have the same flight characteristics. So I started looking up all this cool stuff about why a golf ball's rough. And that's explained in Calling All Minds. That rough surface improves the aerodynamics. And how did people discover that? They found old scuffed balls worked better. And then I looked up the patent for the um, jet engine that's scalloped on the back end of the exhaust. And it makes the plane quieter. It's a really cool patent. It's just a shape. A patent so simple that a second grader can understand this patent. And Temple Grandin, you yourself are the holder of a patent. It's an animal stunning system for slaughterhouses. Tell us just a little bit more about uh, this inventor you were related to, your grandfather, and the, the autopilot he created. When was that? I'm like, that was way before, it was before World War II. Huh. Grandfather was an MIT-trained engineer and a man named Andrew Nickian, who was probably on the autism spectrum, came to him with this wild idea for a magnetic sensor, three little uh, coils that can be put in the wing of the airplane to sense the magnetic field. And all the big names in aviation thought it was just crazy. They were going to wire that plane steering up to the magnetic compass. Only problem is it oscillated all over the place. So my grandfather got together with uh, some other people and with Mr. Nicky, and they tinkered in the loft over a place that uh, fixed the trains. 
And sometimes the um, magnetic device would work, and other times it went crazy. And he finally figured out that when the trains went about six feet under his workbench, it totally messed up the magnetic field. And he got it out there away from the trains, and then it worked. But they had to tinker to get it to work. And so my grandfather was in the situation where he looked at something that a lot of people thought was kind of a wild idea. And he goes, yeah, but I can make that work. A lot of young people work with computers now, and I wonder, Temple Grandin, if you think of coding as a kind of invention. Oh, it's definitely an invention. What I've talked about in my other books, such as The Autistic Brain and Thinking in Pictures, I've talked about different kinds of thinking. Some people are visual thinkers like me who think in photorealistic pictures. Everything is a picture. And then there's other people that think in patterns, more mathematical Those are the people that would be extremely good at coding. They're more the mathematical mind, the musical mind. And then you've got other people that think completely in words. And there's scientific evidence that these different kinds of minds exist. But I'm getting worried that our school system is screening out a lot of our visual thinkers like me because we absolutely can't do algebra. But I worked with brilliant skilled tradespeople right here in Colorado on projects I did in the big beef plants here. And I think today some of these people would be you know, diagnosed dyslexic, maybe ADHD, maybe mildly autistic, and they could make all kinds of complicated things out of metal. And I'm worried that we're uh, losing these kids because hmm. we need them. No, I'm really concerned. I was just talking to a mom this morning and her daughter that came in to visit with me. And um, their school up in Wyoming had just taken out the automobile shop class. And I go, that's the worst thing you could do. You need visual thinkers. Let's take your iPhone, for example. Yeah. Steve Jobs was an artist. He was probably on the autism spectrum. An artist made the interface, which makes your phone easy to use. The engineers, the more mathematical engineers, they had to make the inside of that phone work. So that's the two different kinds of minds working together. Right. And then there's the mind like mine, which is totally word based, which might work on, you know, the predictive text or the translation of something. That's right. Uh That's why you're in radio. (laughs) Uh, It's interesting. I wonder how often you look at people in mainstream media and say, I think he's on the spectrum. She's on the spectrum. That person's on the spectrum. Oh, I've seen it all the time, and I've been out the Silicon Valley, and oh, half those programmers are on the spectrum, and so are some of the people running the companies. Autism is a continuum, going from somebody who's super brilliant and gets a little shortchanged on the social circuits to somebody who remains nonverbal and cannot dress themselves. And one of the problems today in education is that this huge spectrum now all has the same name, hmm. and I'm seeing too many smart kids getting getting held back. When I was a young child, uh, my ability in art was really encouraged. And I was encouraged to do lots of different kinds of art, not just doing the same horse head over and over again. So if the kid likes anime, have him do the anime guy's car. Have him make a picture of his house. You want to take that interest and broaden it. We need all the different kinds of minds. And the first step is for people to recognize that different minds bring different skills And when people recognize that there's different ways people think, they can uh, kind of divide up the work so that the different skills can work together. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. CSU animal scientist Temple Grandin. Her book for young people is Calling All Minds, How to Think and Create Like an Inventor. We spoke in October. As 2018 comes to a close, we're listening back to some of our favorite author interviews. Up next, Taming the Wild Wild West... Longmire style. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. They said, go, go see Dr. Dahl. 
I'm Carla Walker from Colorado Public Radio Classical, and that's conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill, my co-host in the CPR Performance Studio, for a new podcast exploring the life and work of one of the great composers, Sergei Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff may be the best example, maybe the only example, of a composer who overcame severe writer's block with the help of hypnosis. He'd walk down the street to Nikolai Dahl's house, lie back in a deep, comfortable armchair, and Dahl would speak to him in his soft, hypnotic voice. You will begin to write your concerto. You will work with great facility. The concerto will be of an excellent quality. Hypnosis worked. Rachmaninoff was able to write his second piano concerto, the middle movement of which is absolutely stunning. It starts in this still, dark C minor. And very quickly, it turns to a warm, comforting E major. For CPR's great composers wherever you get your podcasts, and thanks to CPR's supporting members who make digital content like this possible. Learn more at CPR.org. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. As 2018 comes to a close, we are revisiting some of our favorite interviews with writers. In the latest Longmire mystery, Sheriff Walt Longmire is out of his element. The rugged Wyoming lawman is in the Chihuahuan Desert of northern Mexico, and he's not on vacation. Author Craig Johnson, one of the most successful and prolific Western writers out there, joined me in August to talk about his latest book and about the sun setting on the Longmire TV series. Welcome back to the show. Craig. Thanks, Ryan. Great to be here. Since we last spoke, Netflix ended Longmire. It ran for a total of six seasons. Uh, How about we hear a clip from the finale? Sure. Okay. Sheriff Longmire and his partner Vic are about to go on a bust. And once again, they face the possibility of death. Uh, You'll hear actor Robert Taylor's low voice and brooding pauses. (laughs) And his partner, Victoria Vic Moretti, played by Katie Sackhoff. How many times are we going to have the is this it conversation? I didn't realize we were even having a conversation. I am. I am, okay? I feel like I am always having to say goodbye to you. Just in case. Goodbye is always implied. This line of work. I guess I just usually put it out of my mind. Maybe I shouldn't do that anymore. Gosh, the pauses in that are as large as the spaces in Wyoming, can you say? <laughs> they do let the characters breathe. Like, it was really kind of nice. That was one of the things that happened, though, whenever we made the leap from, uh, you know, basic cable over to Netflix. It was kind of nice like that because, you know, they really didn't care, you know, about the length of the, of the episodes. You know, they were fine, you know, with them going well over an hour. And before that, you know, we were kind of trapped in that 42-minute teleplay construction, you know, that allowed for 18 minutes of commercials. So it really was kind of nice. Right. The show was born on cable and then migrated to Netflix. Do you miss the show? 
Oh yeah, oh yeah, I do like that. I mean, you know, the the actors, the performers, and everybody that's involved, the crew, and everybody. All over six years, they've kind of become family to a certain extent, you know. But uh, we did just finish up Longmire Days up in Buffalo, Wyoming, where we have the the cast and some of the crew come up, and uh, along with about fifteen thousand of their closest friends, okay. into the little town of <laughs> Buffalo, like that. And so I did see them most recently, and, and, and as far as I know, like at Robert Taylor is you know happy to, to continue doing well, Longmire Days, even if they have to roll him out there in a wheelchair. On Onward and upward, your latest mystery is called Depth of Winter, which might imply that things are cold, but in fact, it's <laughs> sweltering in most of your book. Tell us why Sheriff Longmire is in the Mexican desert, far from Wyoming. About five books ago in The Serpent's Tooth, there was a character um, that was introduced by the name of Tomas Bedart, and um, he is kind of a, a, a bad guy like that. Him, he's involved with the narco culture down in Mexico, a lot of uh, you know terrorist activities and that type of thing. And so, you know, he and Walt kind of go head to head in Absaroka County, you know, because he he makes a mistake of taking Walt on, you know, in his resources, you know, with his uh, backup and, you know, all of that and, and you know, makes a mistake and barely makes it out of Absaroka County alive. Like, And so he kind of plots his revenge and kind of wreaks some revenge on Walt in the last five books. And it finally comes to a head in Depth of Winter. Finally, we had this face off between Walt Longmire and Tomas Bedard. Can we say what happens or we're leaving that? We can we can go into that a little bit. Actually, what happens is, is uh, Tomas Bedard actually, um, he kidnaps uh, Katie, Walt's daughter, like that, and takes her um, into Mexico, um, decides that maybe a different battleground might be uh, serve him better. Like that. So he takes her into Mexico and Walt is uh, kind of a man alone. Like that, the, the American government doesn't want him going down there. The Mexican government doesn't want him going down there. And so he kind of has to be in a, a man alone against an army. Craig Johnson, you don't write these books in a vacuum. And Mexico is in the headlines these days, certainly with trade uh, the relationship between the U.S. and Mexico these days, given the administration. Did you have some thought about that as you wrote about Mexico, that that's sort of a fraught relationship at the moment? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've got the Diaz quote in the beginning like that about, you know, how, you know, poor Mexico, you know, so far from God, so close to the United States. Again, so there's a lot of aspects you, know, you want to take into consideration. I mean, you, when you write these type of books, I think the best thing you can do is write them in layers, you know, so that people can really enjoy the book for a number of different reasons. And, you know, this one obviously has a lot to say, you know, about the relationship between America, you know, and Mexico and, you know, also, you know, when you have these type of characters, these iconic uh, type of characters, it's it's something when they're in their you know own element. It's yeah. another thing when you take them out of it and make them do something different. <laughs> there is a lot uh, about the border patrol, mm-hmm. for instance, and about what it means to cross the border, mm-hmm. how easily you can do that or not. How do you write about Mexico accurately, especially when you're so familiar with Wyoming? You know, you live there. Mm -hmm. You have uh, also imagined Absaroka County in the previous books for for years now. Mm And then you you set things in this new place. Well, I'm a big one for primary research. I mean, you can do, you know, like all of the research on the Internet. You know, you can watch the documentaries like that. You can read. You can do all of the things that you need to to gather as much information to garner the type of story that you're wanting to write. But it's never going to be quite as good as going like that. And so I've been in Mexico a number of times, you know, in my life like that. And here recently, especially in the Juarez area, like that, the city's cleaned up a lot. But it still has, you know, some rough edges. Um, And there are actually people that you can go down to El Paso 
so like that and higher like that. And they will take you across if you want to go into some of the areas that may be a little bit more sketchy. And uh, it was funny because I was over there with uh, one of these guys and they tell you what to, how to dress and what to do, look at and what to do in certain situations. You know, and they're fluent in Spanish and in the culture and everything. And uh, I'd been over there for a couple of hours like that, you know, and we're south of Juarez and uh, you know, a few, few interesting things that happened like that. And he finally turns and looks at me and he says, are you a cop? And I said, no, no, I'm not. Look at it. And he says, well, you're not in the drug trade, are you? And I said, no, I'm definitely not. And then he <laughs> As goes, if you'd answer yes if you were. <laughs> exactly. And then he said, well, what do you do? Look at it. And I said, well, I'm a writer. And he goes, well, what do you write? Look at it. And I said, well, I, I've got a series of books about a Wyoming sheriff. Um, and he goes, Longmire? And I said, well, um, yeah, I like that. And he goes, don't tell anybody that. He said, the, the second biggest money-making operation going on in Juarez these days is kidnapping. And oh. so don't let anyone know that you write those books. Yes, because <laughs> people would likely pay a, a handsome ransom. Yeah, and I don't know. You. I'm not so sure my wife would pay. I don't okay. know. If that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and and like you, uh, Sheriff Longmire sort of sticks out in Mexico. <laughs> Uh, I think long, he's very tall, right? Isn't he, he six, is. six two or six three? Something he's six like that? five. He was six <laughs> five. Okay. Uh, how, how do you get him across the border discreetly into these, you know, places outside, you know, where tourists go? Well, it really wasn't so much of a difficulty in getting him into Mexico and even sometimes getting him out of Mexico. Like at the difficulty, of course, was is that, you know, Walt kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. He's like six foot five. He weighs about, you know, 255, 260 pounds. Like he was, you know, he was, a, he was an offensive tackle for USC. Like he was a Marine investigator. So in Mexico, he kind of stands out like that. And um, so the difficulty was trying to find a reason why he would be there and no one would know exactly who he was. And um, one of his compositions Padres, uh, the seer, like a thalidomide um, uh, individual who has lost his legs, is a hunchback and has, si- has no sight. Comes and yet up, it's called the seer. Yet it's called the seer his, for his vision because he has an ability, like it, to see things perhaps that other people don't. Like it, and uh, he comes up with a pretty unique idea on how to cover Walt uh, to an extent. Like it, and I guess I can give it away. Like it, I don't think it'll tear the book up too badly. Like it, but he passes him off as Bob Lilly, the defensive end for the Dallas Cowboys. Like <laughs> so Walt. <laughs> has to pretend um, that he's a Dallas cowboy like for a certain portion of the book. <laughs> they get around Mexico to rescue Sheriff Longmire's daughter, Katie, from some drug lords. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get around in a vehicle that's not exactly low profile either. No, it's it, it, not. It, I think it might stick out more than the sheriff. <laughs> will, will you read this description for us? I just loved it. I'll be happy to. Like, it, it's one of those situations, of course, like that, which we've seen in movies and we've seen um, in books like at a, a lot of times, you know, where... Um, um, you know, these Americans gather together, you know, a group of individuals like at to head across the border like that. And I don't think that there's ever been a more misbegotten group of individuals assembled as there are in Depth of Winter. A motley crew. A motley crew is a perfect. <laughs> on this on this journey. Perfect description. This is from Chapter One. We'd reached the curb when a large, honest-to-God, pink 1959 Cadillac convertible pulled into view, sliding up to the front of us like a pulsating puddle of Pepto-Bismol oozing <laughs> to a stop. A young man with long hair and amazingly thick Coke bottle glasses got out and came around, opened the door, and saluted me. Hola, Capitan. The seer gestured towards the young man, my nephew, Alonzo, our driver. I gave him my hand, while Longmire. I love the idea of a pink Cadillac <laughs> as oozing like Pepto-Bismol. I'll never see a pink car the same way. That's all I could ever think of. Like whenever I looked at the colors of those things was like it looks like a bottle of Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> 
any book that involves a drug gang is going to get violent. Mm -hmm. But I think I lost count of how many times Sheriff Longmire is knocked unconscious in this book. You know, it's a rough road to hoe like that. But it's one of those things where I don't think the book is overtly violent. But I mean, it is in a violent situation and a violent violent culture like that. And, um, you know, that's one of the big issues for Walt, I think, throughout the book is to try and hold on, you know, to his humanity. I mean, you know, for me, one of the my favorite parts in the book, like that is the part where he's sitting behind the abandoned mission with Bianca and uh, they're having a cup of coffee and he's got a book sitting in front of him and it's a an autobiography or not an autobiography but rather a biography of uh, Ambrose Bierce and she looks at him and she says what's the book about and he's telling her and she looks at him and she says do you realize that you're crying and he wipes the tear away from his eye and looks at her and says this is what I miss normalcy you know something that you know is away from all of this insanity and all this violence this is this is what I miss thanks for being with us my pleasure Ryan Western author Craig Johnson writes the Longmire series. He lives in Ucross, Wyoming. The Arctic is warming twice as fast as any other place on Earth. Scientists predict the Arctic will soon have ice-free summers. When Mark Serez began researching the North Pole in the 1980s, he was skeptical of climate change and secretly hoped the Arctic would cool. Today, Serez leads the National Snow and Ice Data Center in Boulder. He writes about the melting north in his book Brave New Arctic. Our discussion from August is a 2018 favorite. And uh, Mark, welcome to the oh, program. thanks for having me. The Arctic can feel far away. Help me understand how we are connected to what happens there. Well, we are in many ways uh, connected to it. If you look at how the basic weather machine works, uh, it works because the Arctic is cold and it's warm in the lower latitudes. So there's a whole transport of energy from the lower to the higher latitudes. And as the Arctic changes, what we're expecting is that we could actually have influences on weather patterns down here in middle latitudes as we lose the sea ice and as the Arctic warms. Interesting. What did you call it? The weather machine uh, in a way the Arctic might be our air conditioner, and it's a bit on the fritz. Well, I think that's a good description of it. Uh, it is where the snow and ice it is the refrigerator of our planet, and that refrigerator is uh, quickly changing, and it's not doing the kind of job that it used to do for us. And so to say that it would affect weather patterns here... What would be the effects in Colorado? Well, it's unclear what the effects here, right here in Colorado would be. This is actually a very controversial thing. Okay. Like how might this happen? How might this Arctic sort of lower latitude connection work? There's a lot of people working on this. But it is just uh, another uh, piece of the story that, you know, what happens up there can influence what happens down here. As we said, you haven't always been a wholehearted believer in human-caused climate change. And in fact, for years, you called yourself a fence-sitter. Why? Because I just didn't see enough evidence. I started out doing Arctic work, oh, back in the early 1980s when the Arctic was still the Arctic of old, that the old explorers of the 19th century would have recognized. And it was in sort of the early 1990s through the mid-1990s that we really started to see things change. But a lot of it looked to me just what we would call natural variability in climate. We expected that the human influence on climate change would appear in the Arctic, but I wasn't convinced that we had seen it. So I was uh, definitely a bit of a skeptic for quite a while. I wonder if, like some skeptics, they look at the history of the globe and they say, well, there used to be an ice age. 
Now there isn't one. Of course, climate changes. It sounds like that was the category you were in. Well, in a sense, yeah, climate's always changed. But the thing is, any kind of climate change always has a reason. It doesn't just happen like Harry Potter above, you know, flicking his magic wand. All climate change has a reason. Past climate changes in Earth's history, we understand how a lot of that happened. Hmm. What's happening now is just another reason. It's because of human effects that we're loading the atmosphere with greenhouse gases and the climate is responding to that. You began to see the evidence you needed to embrace that wholeheartedly. That's right. And it took a while for me. Uh, even in the year 2000, now I'm a, I'm a climate scientist. I write papers and do things like that. Uh-huh. We wrote a very, very big paper in the year 2000, even that recently, where we said we're seeing these changes changes emerging in the Arctic. But what's the cause of them? We still weren't sure. It was about another three years or so that it took me to really get off the fence and turn to the other side, because by then the evidence just became so overwhelming that I had no recourse but to say, okay, it's here. The evidence that greenhouse gases were contributing. All right. Take us back to that first trip to the Arctic. You arrived in far northern Canada on Elsmer Island to do research on ice caps there. What was it like? Oh, we had been stuck for weather for a long time until we got to this ice cap. Finally, we got there on this beautiful cloudless day. And just a few things I remember about it. There was some fresh snow and some hoarfrost had developed the previous night. And these little ice facets were there on the surface. Every one of them sparkling like jewels in the sunshine. And uh, we were at about 3,000 feet at the top of this little ice cap. And you could see for 80 miles in any direction. It sounds so crisp. It was. But what really struck me was the absolute dead silence. After the airplane that dropped us off roared away... You could hear absolutely nothing. And that's such a rare thing, to hear absolutely nothing. And that's probably the thing that really stuck with me for a long time. I almost don't want to ask, what's of the ice caps today? They're dead. They're basically gone. Um, A couple years ago, I was interested to see what had happened to them. And so I went down to uh, talk to one of my uh, colleagues down the hall who was Uh, looking at ice caps and ice sheets and what was happening to them from high-resolution satellite images. And so I said, well, why don't we go look at where those little ice caps are and see what's happened to them? And we looked and we looked and we finally got some clear sky data and they were almost gone. And they had shrunken to little patches of ice, maybe the size of a couple of football fields. With the melting north, I suppose there are challenges coming And opportunities as well. And some of this is geopolitical. Help us understand that. Yeah, well, of course, when we talk about the changing Arctic, there's all kinds of environmental impacts. Uh, Everything from old polar bears and seals uh, down to the phytoplankton in the ocean. Uh, But there's all these geopolitical issues that are now emerging. Who owns the Arctic? What's happening now is shipping routes are starting to open, what we call the Northwest Passage through the channels of the Canadian Arctic, along the shores of Siberia called the Northern Sea Route. Uh, These areas are now opening up to business. So the idea is you take your boatload of, say, Toyota Priuses, and you go uh, directly from Toyota, 
Tokyo right across the Arctic Ocean to New York or wherever you're going, as opposed to going through the Suez Canal or something like that. At savings of time, at savings of money. But we know that there have been many battles in history over shipping routes. <laughs> That's right. And the Russians have been operating on the Northern Sea Route for a long, long time. But they see this as a great opportunity, right? What do they do? Put up a toll booth in Murmansk or something like that? Uh, the Russians are all over the changing Arctic, uh, not just in terms of things like shipping routes, but there's a lot of oil and natural gas at the bottom of the Arctic Ocean. And if prices are right, we're going to go after it. And Russia already has. It's a bit of an irony here. Yes, there's a vicious cycle, I think <laughs> yes. you might say. Yes, that's right. There's quite an irony out here that uh, we're losing the sea ice because of fossil fuel burning, but here we are going to drill for oil there. But that's what's happening. And uh, even like our Department of Defense is very on to what's going on in the Arctic. I've worked with people from the Navy before, and what they tell me is that I don't care why we're losing the sea ice cover. All I know is I've got a blue ocean now that I didn't have before, and now I've got to deal with it. That is Mark Serez, director of the National Snow and Ice Data Center in Boulder. We spoke in August about his book, Brave New Arctic, the untold story of the melting north. Finally, we can't wrap up the year in books without a true life story just for kids. Picture this, a baby llama gets stuck on top of a mountain. That actually happened on Pike's Peak. A llama named Homer was up there for a month and a half. Tracy Ducharme rescued him and has illustrated The Little Lost Llama. We spoke in October. Tracy, welcome to the program. Thank you. Delighted to be here. This was big news in 2009, wasn't it? It was. People were really captivated by the story. The uh, Gazette had some pictures of him in the newspaper. People on the Cog Railway were taking his picture and... People thought it was kind of interesting and fun, but when we found out about it, we started to be concerned because we knew it wasn't natural for him to be up there and it could be a dangerous situation for him. You mentioned the Gazette in Colorado Springs, so this made the newspapers, it made television stations. The book follows the saga from Homer's point of view, uh, but I'm interested in your perspective for the purposes of this interview. You and your friends indeed took it upon yourselves to rescue Homer. Right. My friend Marlies Van Zant had friends that were rangers on the mountain and also knew the man that was in charge of the Cog Railway. And she started coordinating with them ideas and times when we could go up there. And it was fall, so there were already some winter storms happening. So we were starting to get worried about him. And we didn't think he would survive much longer. So they gave us this train schedule, gave us permission to walk on the train tracks. Oh. And yeah, so we went up there a few times looking for him. So in no way is this a friendly landscape to a llama? I mean, I guess I think of a llama as a creature that's not afraid of mountains necessarily. Well, they are an alpine animal. They're they're native to the Andes in South America, but they're a domesticated animal. And this was a juvenile. In fact, when we found him, he already suffered some frostbite. And with all the predators and everything else, it's amazing that he survived for six weeks. How do you begin to rescue a llama? It seems even harder than trying to get like a bird that's flown into my house. Well, <laughs> well, it was when the first time I went up there and we got out of the truck and looked around and this is a white llama on a snow-capped mountain. Okay. And I thought... Looking this for a polar is, bear in a snowstorm, yes. in other words. 
I, I thought I wasn't very optimistic, but we knew where he hung out because the hunters had seen him and had reported to the rangers. The rangers had actually tried to capture him a couple of times with a lasso. And so we knew about where to look for him. Uh, we'd seen his tracks, and so we knew he was still up there. So I had some optimism, but it was like a needle in a haystack looking for him. Did you use some sort of lure? My lure was my llama. So we knew that he would be extremely lonely because they're very strong herd instinct. And that's why he was trying to join the sheep herd that was up there. Oh. And and with little success, they kept chasing him away because he was very funny looking to them. But we thought if we, he could see us with our llamas, that he would come to us. And that's exactly what happened. Would you read this portion of the book? Sure. For us. Sure. This is from The Little Lost Llama, based on a true story. Suddenly, Tracy spotted the little lost llama. He was below her on the mountain. He looked healthy, though a little thin. Tracy knew this would be her best chance to rescue him. But the little lost llama was so busy playing with a marmot and ground squirrels, he didn't notice her. Come on, dancer, she said. Let's go get this little llama. Later that morning, when the storm quieted, the little lost llama ventured out of his protected space. He saw a most surprising and welcoming sight. Another llama was cautiously approaching him, making his way slowly over the rough, frozen ground. And this worked. It worked. It worked. Okay, what of Homer today? He's a healthy, athletic, fun, 10-year-old llama. (laughs) And in your possession? Yes, yes. Okay. Who were Homer's owners, and were they aware of what was happening? Well, it was interesting because the day I captured him, we happened to have there was a news reporter on the mountain with me that day, and she did a little interview. And the interview was picked up by the AP and broadcast nationwide. And his previous owners happened to be in Seattle, Washington, and saw it on TV. And they contacted the AP and then got my information through the AP and and reached out to me. That's how we figured out how old he was, how long he'd been missing, what happened to his mother, and all the backstory. And so he had uh, wandered off when they lived in Colorado and they had then moved to Washington? They had a summertime ranch near Divide, Colorado. And so they had already left for the winter. Okay. And, uh, And they were happy to have you... Homer's keeper. Yes, the herd had been attacked by a mountain lion, and it wasn't the first uh, mountain lion encounter that they'd had. And so they had gotten rid of the rest of their llamas. And so he didn't really have a herd to go home to. So they asked me to board him for the winter. And of course, by spring, I was so attached to him that they uh, gifted him to me. I'm glad Homer is doing well. What have you brought with you? What is this? So this is roving. I wanted to show you how soft the fiber is that the, the llamas in, in the sweater that I'm wearing is made from my my llama's fiber. I see. Their so wool. Isn't you, that wonderful? That is wonderful. Incredibly soft. And uh, it, But is that Homer's? This is actually Dancer's. He's the That's hero okay. llama that rescued Homer. Well, thank you so <laughs> much for being with us. We really appreciate your sharing this story with us. Thank you for inviting me. Tracy Ducharme rescued the baby llama stuck atop Pikes Peak in 2009. She also illustrated the children's book, The Little Lost Llama. Thanks for spending time with us. I hope your holidays are going well. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.